All right, good morning, church. Uh, If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in uh, Matthew 17 this morning, so if you want to go ahead and make your way over there, I'm going to join you all there momentarily. Um, So for several weeks now, Pastor Micah has been leading us in a series uh, on the miracles of Jesus, and with him being out of town, he offered me the opportunity to take a crack at one, so I jumped at it. Uh, In this miracle series, we have looked at several of the miracles of Jesus, including the resurrection, the healing of the leper. Uh, cleansing the demon-possessed, healing the broken, calming the storm, feeding 5,000, healing the blind, Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath, and Christ walking on water. This week, while it's not as extravagant in scope and size, it is a miracle that only Christ could have performed. All right, this morning we're going to look at and break down the miracle of the temple tax. All right. Ben Franklin once said, nothing is certain except for death and taxes. Well, Jesus overcame death, and this morning we're going to take and see how he overcomes taxes as well. All right. Now, this miracle probably doesn't really come spring into your mind. Um, it's only recorded in one gospel. It's recorded in the book of Matthew. Um, it's interesting to me that Matthew is the one that records the miracle of the temple tax since what was Matthew's occupation? He's a tax collector, all the irony. Of course, the tax collector would be the one to make note of this miracle. All right. But the temple tax described here was not actually a tax collected by the Roman government like we see in every other picture of the gospel. Uh, the temple tax was actually a tax uh, for the upkeep of the temple. Um, instead, you know, it was collected by the Jewish leaders of the service for the temple there in Jerusalem. See, in Jesus' time, adult male Jews had to pay an annual half-shekel tax for the upkeep of worship in uh, the temple. The temple tax is based loosely off of Exodus 30, uh, 11 through 16. Now, unlike the Roman taxes of the time, the temple tax was actually seen as patriotic pride. Okay? Um, So most people kind of went along with this tax, but it did not come without its controversies. The Sadducees, who was um, a group of Uh, religious people that believed that the five books of Moses were the only authoritative books of the Bible, um, disproved of it, and the men of Qumran only paid it once in their life. The rest of uh, the Jewish people paid it annually. So what would Jesus' attitude be about the temple tax be? Because Jesus just stated in Matthew 12 that something greater than the temple is here, uh, meaning him. So would Jesus pay the tax? And how would he pay the tax is going to be the follow-up question. And what we're going to see is Jesus is going to pay the tax, but how he gets the money is going to be the miracle. He is going to tell Peter to go fishing. All right, if you aren't familiar with this story, you might be going, huh? But Jesus is going to tell him to go fishing. Now, I love to fish. It is one of my favorite things to do. I've caught a lot of fish. I love it. It's fun. It's relaxing. You get to stand by the shore or on a boat. get to be in part of God's beautiful creation. And then every once in a while, you get to reel in a fish and kill it. All right, it's redneck yoga. All right, it's relaxing. If you ever want to take me fishing, just let me know. I'll be there. But I've caught things that I did not intend to catch while fishing. You know, I've caught baby sharks. I've caught uh, trash. All right, and there's been days where I haven't even been able to catch anything. I mean, I couldn't even catch a cold on some of these days. But never in my 32 years of life, Have I ever caught a fish with money in its mouth? All right, but that's going to be the miracle this morning. 
This is what Jesus instructs Peter to do. He is going to tell him to go to the sea, cast out a hook, and take the first fish he catches and open up that fish's mouth, and there's going to be some money in it. All right, but don't take my word for it. All right, let's read what the word says and see what it exactly says. So we're going to read Matthew 17, 24 through 27. If you're able and willing, I'd ask uh, uh, you stand as we read God's word. And his word says, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two Darshma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? For whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you. Um, Lord, let this time be glorifying to you. Let hearts and minds be focused on you, you, and, you and you alone. Father, just thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. Lord, just let your will be done. Nothing more and nothing less. We just love you so much, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, this is a very unique miracle of Christ. And we have a ton to unpack this morning. So I'm going to talk fast. You're going to listen well. And we're going to get out of here to get the good fried chicken, all right? Sounds good. All right, but before we jump into the uniqueness of this miracle, I want to point out what this miracle shows overall. In previous sermons... We have seen Christ's power over death, illness, brokenness, nature, and even physics. All right, this miracle shows his power over all creation. Jesus makes this fish his personal ATM. He makes a voiceless creature bring the tax money to meet the collector's demand. That's a pretty awesome move, considering. All right, as a youth pastor, I primarily deal with youth. I don't, I don't get to be in here too often with the adults. And... Teenagers fully believe that their parents are a personal ATM. Can I get an amen, parents? But I've never heard the youth talk about how they use their pets as their ATM. Only Jesus could do that. All right. See, God gave Adam and Eve dominion over nature in Genesis. This included the fish in the seas. Man lost this dominion because of sin. So Peter cannot command the fish and get the money. Only Jesus has that power. What Adam lost because of obedience, Jesus regained through his obedience according to the book of Hebrews. What we see in this story is a literal fulfillment of the psalmist's words. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So this is one of many pieces of evidence of the majesty and greatness of our Lord Jesus. Only the one who created could command the obedience of all his creatures by his will. Colossians 1, 16 through 18 says, By him all things were created, by him all things are held together. Now Blair and I love the show America's Got Talent. If you aren't familiar with this show, Everyday people go on to showcase various talents to try to win a million dollars. All right. A lot of people use their animals in their acts. They have them sing or dance, have them do obstacle courses, 
whatever it is, and we as viewers eat it up. We watched a chicken play the piano, all right? You can Google that. That, that happened. It's awesome. All right, we're amazed by that. But we can read God's holy word, and we can read how Christ used a fish to pay a tax, and we can just gloss over it. All right? Recognize the miracle that this is. And it is such a unique miracle that I actually have four truths to go over this morning. All right, we're going to see how this miracle is unique in four different ways. And the first thing I'm going to address this morning is the end of the story. We're going to start at the finish line of the story. And the first truth is this is the only miracle that does not have the results recorded. Notice how this miracle ends. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. The miracle had not yet occurred, but it's coming. We expect to see another verse here that would read something along the lines of, and Peter went to the sea, casted out a hook, and drew up a fish, and then he opened its mouth. He found there a coin and gave it to the collector to pay the temple tax. But there is no Matthew 17, 28. So how do we even know that this miracle occurred? Because Christ said it was going to happen. That's how we know. 1 Kings 8, 56 says, Not one word has failed of all his good promise. So we can take that to the bank that this miracle occurred. It's the same reason we know Christ is coming again. Because he said he's going to do it. Amen? So we do not need a Matthew 17, 28 because we already know Matthew 17, 28. Now, with this, we know that the Christian who goes out to do Christ's work among the untouched or the unreached can safely rely on Jesus because we serve one who has all power even over the beasts of the earth and the fish in the sea. How wonderful the thought that such an almighty Lord was willing to be crucified for our salvation. How comfortable the thought that when he comes again the second time, he will gloriously manifest his power over all created things to the whole world. Isaiah 65, 28, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. What a day that'll be, amen? But before he even tells Peter to go catch this jackpot fish, why does he even submit himself to the tax in the first place? Well, it tells us it's because of our Lord's willingness to make concessions rather than give offense. Why does he pay the tax? He does not want to offend them. This teaches us, and man, this, this should preach to us. There are matters in which Christ's people, us, should forego our own opinions and submit ourselves to things that we may not approve of rather than give offense and hinder the gospel of Christ. I'm going to say that one more time. This one needs to sink in. I've seen some of y'all's Facebooks. All right. There are matters in which Christ's people should forego their own opinions and submit themselves to things that may not approve of rather than give offense and hinder the gospel of Christ. Now, we never give up on things that the Bible says, but maybe, just maybe, we need to give up some of our own things. You know, it, it does sound pretty heroic to always be the person that is always standing out and fighting for your rights. It does. But with this passage, it shows the mind of Christ and that tenacity isn't always wise. There are occasions when it demonstrates more grace to submit rather than to resist. My hope and prayer is that we're going to remember this in three different ways. Let us remember these words as citizens. You know, we may not like our political leaders, whether they have an R next to their name or a D next to their name, and all the fun ways they love to tax us. All right? But the question is, will it do any good to the cause of Christianity 
to talk bad about it on the internet? Are their measures really injuring our souls? If not, maybe we should hold our peace so that we do not give offense to them. Let's remember this passage as a church. We may not like every message. We may not like every song or everything that's going on in the church. But is any gospel truth at stake? If not, maybe just maybe we should hold our peace so that we do not give offense to them. And the third way, let's remember it as a society. There are many things that people do that we view as just useless and just plain dumb. But does that really matter? Will it do any good to Christianity to confront them on it? If not, let us hold our peace so that we do not give offense to them. How awesome would it be if the church and the world took these words Jesus spoke and studied them just a little bit more, pondered on them just a little bit more, and used them more and more every day? We all need to remember the example of Paul when he said in 1 Corinthians 9, 12, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Amen? Just making sure you're all still awake. Notice the collector goes to Peter asking if Jesus would pay the tax. He doesn't even go to Jesus himself. He goes to Peter. Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? No, Peter responds with like a rock-solid yell, right? He's very affirmative in his response. But did you catch that Jesus wasn't even present when the question was asked? Right? The first question Jesus asks when he walks in, it's like he's in the middle of the conversation already. He says, what do you think, Simon? For whom do the kings of the earth receive, toll or tax from their sons or others? So Jesus like walks in, and he's in the middle of the conversation, but he wasn't there. And by the fact that Peter wasn't like freaked out by the time uh, that Jesus knew that this was going on, probably indicates that you know, this wasn't the first time that Jesus has done that, right? <laughs> which is hilarious to me. Because my mom went straight to like the disciples arguing over what they wanted for dinner. And like Jesus just walks in the door and he's like Chick-fil-A. And he just walks out and it scares all the disciples until he realizes that you know, he was right. You know, it's the Lord's chicken. It's delicious. Right? Christ asked this question. For whom do the kings of the earth receive toller tax from their sons or others? Because kings did not receive taxes from their sons. Since Jesus, being the Son of God, he should not have had to pay this tax, right, for the maintenance of his father's house. He, who was greater than the temple, might have shown good cause for deciding not to support the tax. But our Lord does not do this. God had declared Jesus his son through his transfiguration earlier in chapter 17 and at his baptism, at Christ's baptism. But yet God's glory remained veiled as he moved toward the cross. So he claims no exemption. He desires Peter to pay the money demanded, and at the same time, he declares his reasons. It was to be done so that he may not offend them. A miracle is performed rather than offend even a tax collector. I also want to point out that there's something unspeakably solemn in the thought that Jesus knows all things. There is an eye that sees all of our daily conduct, there is an ear that hears all of our daily words. Concealment is impossible. Hypocrisy is useless. We can deceive our pastor. We can trick our church family. We may fool our family and neighbors, but the Lord sees us through and through. We cannot deceive Jesus. 
we can easily apply this truth to our lives. We should want to live each and every moment as in the Lord's sight and like Abraham to walk before him. We should make it our daily mission to say nothing we would want Jesus or not want Jesus to hear. We should not uh, do anything we would not want Jesus to see us do. I've also learned this rule applies to a two-year-old. <laughs> All right. Judah will only mimic the bad stuff I do, though. All right. When we are in difficult scenarios to right and wrong, we should put it to one simple test. How would I act if Jesus was standing right next to me? You might be sitting there going, eh, you're full of it. You may not like this one. You know, applying this to your life would only fear, interfere, wouldn't interfere with your work, wouldn't interfere, interfere with your daily life. It would interfere with one thing and one thing only, sin. That is the only thing it will interfere with is sin. As Christians and followers of Jesus, this should be our aim. Amen? I'm going to close this first part with a quote from J.C. Ryle. And he said, Happy is he that tries to realize his Lord's presence and to do all and say all as in Christ. I pray that preaches to us. Moving on to the second truth. It is the only miracle that Jesus performed for his own needs. Turn to Matthew 4.3 uh, really quickly for me. In Matthew 4.3, this is the temptation of Jesus. He just spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness fasting. Jesus has to be a little hungry at this point, right? So the devil comes out to tempting. And let's see what he does. If you're at Matthew 4.3, give me an amen. If you are the son of God, this is the devil speaking, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, being Jesus, answered, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the scriptures continue with the devil continuing to tempt Jesus and Jesus refusing. Right? So Satan is tempting Christ to use his divine powers, but he keeps refusing. So why now? Why now is Christ using his powers to meet his own needs? It's so he would not give offense to them. Right? That was our Lord's explanation for this miracle. He did not want people to be offended because he, being a Jew, did not support the temple ministry. But Christ is not the only one who this miracle is performed for. It was also performed for Peter. Now this isn't the only miracle uh, Christ performed for me, uh, Peter. Jesus healed Peter's mother, uh, mother-in-law in Mark 1. He helped Peter to catch fish in Luke 5, enabled him to walk on water, as Pastor Micah talked about a few weeks ago in Matthew 14, and he delivered Peter from prison in Acts 12. No wonder Peter wrote, casting all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you, right? Must have been easy for him. Jesus knew Peter's needs and was able to meet that need. Peter thought he had the problem solved when Jesus entered the house. But before he could even get a word out, Christ goes, here's the plan. All right. You know, God the Father interrupted Peter in the, uh, Matthew 17, 5 during the transfiguration at the top of the mountain. Now God the Son is interrupting him in his house. If we would only just be quiet and let Jesus give directions, we would see him meet our needs for his glory. So Christ performs this miracle for himself and for Peter. But this also brings up an interesting question. What about the other disciples? And I'm glad you asked. There is a pretty compelling argument to be made that the disciples were actually young men. We typically think of them to be in like their 30s or 40s, um, ranging in age, but they're really probably between the ages of 13 and 20. 
at the times of their calling. And there are several arguments to be made for this case. And the first argument that they're probably in that age group is Jewish training. And this is going to be on the board because it's uh, six different things. The ancient Jewish system goes as follows. When young boys turned five, they started studying scripture. They started studying the Mishnah at age 10. Torah obligations began at 13. And then at the age of 15, they continued their rabbinical, or, uh, rabbinical study if chosen to be tutored by a formal teacher. They were arranged to be married by the age of 18, and their formal teaching was at 30. So formalized education was done by the age of 15 unless one sought the tutelage of a rabbi. All right, if the student was picked, they got to study under the rabbi until the age of 30. All right, not a lot of young men got picked. So the majority entered the workforce at the age of 15 and mostly went into the family business. Since the disciples were working, we can assume that they were disregarded for formalized education by the rabbis when Jesus called them. All right, the second argument is the traveling. A teenager is more likely to engage in continuing their education. Since a man over 30 leaving his job and his family would have been very counterculture and shunned by the community. Most disciples began traveling with a rabbi at the age of 15 or 16. We know the disciples had left their jobs and their families behind. And then the third argument would be uh, their marital status. It was customary for Jewish boys to be arranged for marriage by the age of 18. We know Peter was married because he had a mother-in-law, according to Mark 1. We can speculate that the other disciples were too young to be married, since being a bachelor was frowned upon in Jewish culture. Okay? And the last argument that I have, and there are other ones, um, I had to dwindle it down for the sake of time, um, is the temple tax. All right? It's the miracle Christ performed for himself and for Peter. Peter was most likely the oldest because he's the only one of the disciples to pay the temple tax. Although we can't be certain, we can speculate that the other disciples were underage and therefore exempt from paying the tax because you didn't start paying the tax until you were 20 years old. All right? So Peter was the only one that had to pay the tax. And this brings me to my third observation. It is the only miracle using money. All right? The original use of this tax money was to make silver sockets on which the tabernacle poles were erected according to Exodus 38. The money was to be a reminder to the Jews that had been redeemed from Egyptian slavery. Throughout this miracle, though, Jesus was giving indication after indication after indication that Jesus ended the Mosaic law. The disciples failed to grasp this until after the resurrection. They were redeemed from Egyptian slavery, but we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. As the death of the Passover lamb liberated the Israelites from physical bondage in Egypt, so the death of Jesus Christ frees us from the spiritual bondage of sin. But I also think that this miracle displays that we really shouldn't worry about money. Right? Jesus and Peter sure didn't seem too worried about that. Um, and they didn't even have a dollar to their name. All right? Again, there's a reason Peter wrote, casting all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. 
What do we as children of God have to worry about? Just look at the birds of air. Those are words of Christ, right? God feeds the birds. He takes care of the lilies. He clothes the grass. Are we not more valuable than they are? For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things shall be added to you. You know, Jesus knows. God knows our needs. But he tells us not to worry about those things. Seek God first and the rest will fall into place. With this miracle, though, you need to realize we're going to have to work for it. It's not freely given. You see, Jesus could have just made the money appear out of thin air like he did with the fish and bread at the feeding of the 5,000. He could have went up to Peter like a magician, you know, what, behind your ear? But he didn't do that either. But Jesus has Peter do some work for it. He has Peter grab a pole, get on a boat, paddle out, reel in the fish. Peter is the vessel in which God performed this miracle. Now, the message isn't to go out and start chasing money. I don't walk out here telling Pastor Micah, I told you to go out there and start getting that bread. All right. That expression, by the way, for my 40 and older crowd, get that bread is an expression to go make money. All right. I learn a lot as a youth pastor. All right. That's not what I'm saying. All right. J.D. Greer once said, when something becomes... Uh, when something becomes so important to you that it drives your behavior and commands your emotions, you are worshiping it. We don't want to do that. That's not what I'm saying. We don't chase money because then money becomes an idol. We chase God. We chase knowing Christ. All right. What's the point if we gain the whole world but lose our souls? But the question I have for you this morning, are you chasing God? In the last month, have you spent more time in your finances or in the word? All right. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Right? Part of our job as followers of Jesus is to deepen our relationship with him. Are we doing that? What is one thing you could do this week to deepen your relationship with Christ this week? A lot of us feel convicted when we're at church, right? Whether it's the music, the prayers, the message, whatever it is, we get these feelings that we want to start doing something and deepening our relationship with God. And while we're here, we have those feelings, but something happens between the pew and in the parking lot. Those feelings go away. We end up not doing anything. See, the problem is that we all have these good intentions to grow our relationship with the Lord. We want to start knowing Him more and more, but we don't know how. All right, when we leave at the end of the service, grab the Bible reading plan. That is a great way to start. All right, some of us, you know, I've skipped the gym for like three, four, five, you know, decades. All right, but then one day something happens. All right, we get the great idea to get back into the gym and get fit, right? And the first time we get in there, we're pumped, we're ready to go. Instead of, you know, working out one or two body parts, we work out the whole body, and then we end with like a five-mile run. And then you wake up the next day, and you can't move, right? So you end up not going that day, and before you know it, you're already out of the habit before you are in the habit. That can be our Christian walk sometimes. We get the want to start living for Jesus and you're doing anything and everything right out of the gate, and it's just too much. Then before you know it, you're out of the habit before you're really in the habit again. A Bible reading plan is the best way to start. Once you get comfortable with reading your Bible every day, then you start in other areas. Then you start growing deeper. You start serving in the church, or you start attending other services. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon, 
right? You are running the race to hear that well done, good and faithful servant. You know, I'm a wrestling coach. And one of the things I always tell my wrestlers is a goal without a plan is just a dream. This is no different. Have a plan so you can deepen your relationship with God. So it's unique in that it does not have an ending. It's unique in that it benefited Jesus. It's the only miracle involving money. And the last observation is it's the only miracle that uh, uses one fish, right? Jesus loved using seafood in his miracles, all right? He is the original Captain D's, all right? Jesus multiplied the fish for Peter in Luke 5, and he replicated that miracle in John 21. But in this case, he only used one fish. Why? Consider the complexity of this miracle for a minute, because it would almost seem an easy miracle to perform. But consider this. At some point, someone had to obtain a coin, only to lose it in the water. Then a fish had to swim around, find that coin, and then keep it in its mouth. That same fish had to be near Peter's boat, bite the hook, keep the coin in its mouth while keeping the hook, and then be caught. You know, there is no way to explain all that in a natural way. It is too complex for accident or for human management. I mean, this isn't Babe Ruth going up to the plate and calling his shot and hitting a home run. This is Jesus saying, go catch a fish, and the first fish you catch will have a shekel in it. Way more complicated, and the only way to explain it is Jesus. This miracle actually also brought um, another miracle into my mind when I was studying the text. It brought to my mind that God used one fish in the Old Testament right, to make sure that his will was done. While that fish was significantly bigger with Jonah, it just shows that whether through big or small means, God is trying to teach us. But are you listening? Are you watching? Or are you like a teenager with their phone in their hand? You know, I already have a teenager. My kid's two going on 14. <laughs> I got to share this. While I was going over this sermon with Blair, Judah comes up to her and he has an empty cup and he goes, more Sprite. All right, when, you're, when daddy's done, I'll, I'll get you more Sprite. This kid comes over to me and grabs my papers, throws them in the air, takes his cup and goes, more Sprite, please. I'm not going to tell you what happened after that, but <laughs> discipline occurred. All right. <laughs> but are we listening? Through God's holy word in your day-to-day life, God is trying to teach you more about him. You know, Psalm 32, 8 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will uh, counsel you with my eye upon you. The Lord is trying to tell you that he is going to pay the bill. All right, he is going to pay the bill when he doesn't have to. He is going to pay the bill when he shouldn't. And I'm not talking about a temple tax now. I'm talking about the cross. He paid the bill we couldn't handle. He saw the cost it would take to turn our bodies into his temple, and he paid it willingly. But this just isn't a shekel tax for upkeep on a temple. It was a perfect, unblemished life that totally undid what we could not do. It undid sin. We could not defeat sin. Only Jesus. Only Jesus could pay the temple tax through a fish. Kings don't collect their uh, tax from their children. When we come to Christ, we become children of God. God doesn't collect the dues on the tax of sin on his children. 
And thank you, Jesus, for paying that cost. Are we amazed by that today? I pray that we are. May we be in awe of what God did in this miracle. But more importantly, may we be in awe and worship for what he did in our lives. He pulled us out of death into life. He paid the bill. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, what, what are you waiting on? Today, this very day, could be your day of salvation. This could be the day that God dwells in you as his temple. Cry out to him, and he is going to answer you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, just thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for this miracle showing us that you, you paid it all, Lord, when you shouldn't have. Lord, you, you are the Lord of all creation. Lord, you were able to take a, a small fish and perform a miracle, Lord. So we know that you have control of all things in, in life on this earth and in the afterlife, Lord. We just thank you. Lord, if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that they, they come to know you this morning. Just thank you for your word. Thank you for your glory and your mercies. We just love you, Jesus. Amen.